This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Yeah, so it, it's probably useful for your listeners, your viewers, to just kind of have the lay of the land about the therapy professions because it, it's it's a bit of a mess. Um, I mean, incredibly confusing even to people in the field. So uh, the main therapy professions, there there are psychologists in the United States, psychologists have a, a PhD degree or a PSY degree. A, a psychologist have a doctorate degree. There's psychiatrists who are medical doctors. So there are physicians. Um, then there are many other professions, um, not doctoral level training, um, that practice psychotherapy. And then this is something your, reader, your listeners really need to know the word therapist or psychotherapist actually has no legal or professional meaning. Like in most states in the United States, literally anybody can hang up a shingle. You can hang up a shingle tomorrow and call yourself a therapist. It means nothing. So, you know, I, I hear people all the time and they say, you know, I'm seeing a therapist. My therapist says this and that. And, you know, a, a disturbing <laughs> a disturbingly high percentage of the time and then you know it makes an inquiry about who is this person what's their background um you know it turns out to be somebody with very minimal you know minimal training and knowledge so the the, the field of psychotherapy is just just a wash in people of you know ranging from people with you know i mean real you know real expertise and training and experience you know to um the term is, you know, <laughs> the term is, has gotten into the language recently. Insta therapists, you know, who are found in places like Instagram mm. for posting, but but Insta also means like they became therapists instantly overnight. I mean, it's very very difficult for people to tell the difference between legitimate professionals and you know people who did a a weekend workshop or or got a correspondence school degree. Mm -hmm. That was part of your question. The other part is what is psychoanalysis. So all of the therapy traditions ultimately in, in in modern times uh ultimately began with with freud in the you know, late 1800s and the, the turn of the 20th century um what we call what we call therapy in modern times derives from from that and just the notion that uh that that suffering could be caused by uh you know, what's going on in your mental and emotional life in modern times really begins with, with Freud and the idea that we could treat suffering by talking, <laughs> talking aimed at understanding something about what's going on in a person's mind originates with Freud. Then, of course, from Freud on, it sort of branched out to all these directions and there are different schools of thought that, uh, you know, that really define themselves in opposition to, you know, one or another of the ideas that, that started with him. But, but in fact, if a therapist is meeting with a patient or a client you know, on, a, on a regular basis in order to talk, that's the tradition that started with Freud. So what a psychoanalyst is, is after you've completed your training as a psychologist, you're a licensed psych, you know, doctoral level licensed psychologist or a fully trained board certified psychiatrist, or you're trained in, an, you know, you have, you've completed your training and licensure in some other therapy profession, 
you might then go on to get psychoanalytic training. And so that's the tradition. That's the tradition that's been evolving for you know more than a century that that we can ultimately mm-hmm. trace back to Freud. But it, it, it's the it's the tradition in psychotherapy that recognizes that there's such a thing as unconscious mental life that, that right, we don't okay. fully know our own hearts and minds. No human being can fully know our own hearts and minds. We're not constructed to know that. Um, the things that we don't know about ourselves can hurt us. And we have a method to come to know ourselves more fully and more deeply and become more whole. And, and the goal of this particular kind of therapy, this particular kind of work, is for the person to become more whole and more free. So they don't have to keep repeating the same painful or self-defeating patterns that they've been living out their whole lives, right? The goal mm-hmm. of this kind of therapy is personal agency and expanded, you know, expanded personal freedom. And, and agency and freedom rely on consciousness, uh, not consciousness as in I, I am aware, but I am aware that if, if you thought. don't know what you're doing or why you're doing it, it, it's very, very hard to change it, right? It, it, it's, you don't really, you don't really have the option to make choices freely when you don't understand, you know, sort of the, the, the pulls and pushes that you're, that are going on that, you know, they're leading you towards some to- certain choices and leading you away from other choices. So part of this tradition is that the more fully we know ourselves, the more whole we can be. And what I mean by whole is there's, there's parts of our experience that are known and parts of our experience that are unknown to a greater or lesser degree. Um, and what this kind of therapy is really about. And, and it's what most people think of when they think of psychotherapy. And when you see psychotherapy depicted in, you know, in, in, in movies or, or the media, it's this kind of it's this kind of work that people think about. Um, hmm. So there's there's parts of our experience that are known to us and familiar. There are parts of our experience that are unknown to greater and lesser degrees. And and the goal of the work is for us to become more whole by being able to claim or reclaim what belongs to us. Claim or reclaim a greater range of our experience. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the more fully and deeply we know ourselves, then, you know, the more freedom we have to make choices in our life. And, and it's really, really different than some other approaches that are, that are called therapy, where the therapist has a, a sort of a, a goal or an agenda or an ideology involved, right? There's a sort of a priori notion that when we get done, the patient should be, you know, less this way and more that way. Right? Right. So the therapist approaches the work with an agenda or an ideology versus the ideology of a psychoanalytic or psychodynamic approach is right, the purpose of this work is to understand the person more fully and to help them understand themselves more fully so that they can live their life more freely. Right? That's the purpose. So we don't have an agenda for the, for the patient other than the agenda of, of coming to know themselves. And uh, you know, again, there are different, different, different things that go on in the name of psychotherapy. But in my view, hmm. if that's not the purpose of the work. It's not psychotherapy. It's something else that may be being called psychotherapy. 
So something like uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, that's a very specific, uh, from what I understand, it's a specific tool set for uh, enabling somebody to claim more control, uh, be less impulsive, uh, or have a different relationship with negative experience or some sort of psychological suffering by, uh, you know, having some sort of stoic philosophy, uh, right? Yeah, well... Yes and no. I mean, CBT doesn't mean anything anymore. It's become a blanket umbrella term oh. for a very, very, like, I mean, I, <laughs> you can get some CBT therapists on here and, and ask them. I, I honestly don't believe that anybody could give a meaningful answer to the question. What is CBT? What are the defining principles of CBT? And it, I mean, the umbrella is so big and it subsumes so many different approaches. I actually don't think there's a defining feature except um you know, there is a, a, a sort of commitment that uh, there's a commitment to scientific research, right? We should be able to demonstrate that the therapies are, are helpful in, you know, in research trials. Hmm. Um, but, but there's something else that's infused in the ethos of this, which is it, 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 compared to psychodynamic approaches, the focus is very much on conscious thoughts and beliefs, right? There's an assumption you know, uh, there's an assumption which is actually scientifically false, which is why it's kind of funny and paradoxical that they kind of want to claim the high ground of science mm-hmm. while, in fact, proceeding from an assumption that scientifically doesn't hold up. And the assumption is that your your, your feelings, your emotional responses follow from your thoughts. They're mediated by your thoughts, your thoughts and beliefs. So if we can change your beliefs, mm-hmm. we can change your depression or your anxiety. Well, that's actually inconsistent with what we know about the structure and function of the brain, right? We have the different brain centers, right? There's you know, the frontal lobe and prefrontal cortex. There's the centers that deal with logic and rationality. There are centers of the brain that deal with emotional responses. And it's just neurologically not true that, that you know, our emotion centers are under the control of higher order reasoning. In fact, the opposite is true. There's actually more neural pathways running from the emotion centers to right, right to the centers of the brain that, that deal with logic, reasoning, and beliefs than, than the other way around. It's actually psychologically more true to say, more true to say our, our, our beliefs, you know, our beliefs follow our emotional responses than vice versa. Yeah. So CBT is likely to put thoughts and beliefs at the center and psychoanalysis or psychodynamic therapy says, you know, your emotional life, uh, you know, follows its own course for really reasons that don't necessarily have a lot to do with what you logically think or believe. And we need to deal with your emotional experience on its own terms. The uh, what you summoned up is that brain with all these neurons and pathways and all the structure. How can this weird squishy lump of gray <laughs> matter know itself? And how does talking help that? Well, well, we don't. I mean, this is a source of of confusion in in the public and and in the field. Right? I mean, this is this is this is an ancient problem. You know, going back to you know going back to early philosophers, the mind brain problem. Right, mind and brain are not synonymous. The, the brain is an organ, and we study it as as matter. Right? It, it, it's object. Right, you can put it under a microscope. You can look at it. You can examine its properties. You can do experiments on it. Right, so so we can differentiate between subject and object. If we study something, right, if we study something as matter, the functioning of matter, you know, the, our relationship to it is of you know, our relationship to it is object. Mind is different. 
mind is subjective experience. It's, it's a different level of discourse. It's a different level. Hmm. It's, 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 a different, it's a different level of experience. And, you know, the relationship between mind and brain is very, very, you know, tricky. No, nobody has ever fully solved that problem. Um, an analogy I like to give, there's a, a philosopher of science who, who put the term supervenience on the map. And um, apparently it's a very complicated philosophical definition that Sounds I'm sure like I it. wouldn't, but, <laughs> but the illustration of it is incredibly simple. Uh, and the illustration is, suppose you're watching a movie, you know, Star Wars. Every single thing that you see on you see in the movie, without exception, is you're just looking at arrangements of pixels on the screen. That's just you know effect. Like without the pixels, the movie can't exist. There's nothing in the movie at all that you know that isn't that that is separate from the pixels. Right? So in principle, you could study everything there is to know about you know the electronics, the engineering, the physics of how pixels work. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't know a damn thing about the movie. It tells you nothing about, you know, the battle for the galaxy and mm. Darth Vader. And you might not even be able son. to get to cinematography if you just you break it down. You could not get to it, right? So, so the idea is movie supervenes on pixels, right? Meaning that, right? I mean, the movie is ultimately constructed of, of pixels, but it's a, simply a different level of discourse and understanding mm. And knowledge of pixels has nothing to do with, you know, understanding and appreciating the movie. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I don't know if the analogy is necessarily a perfect one, but I think you could say that mind supervenes on brain. And we have neuroscientists who are studying brain, you know, brain chemistry and neural circuitry and neurotransmitters. And it's amazing and fascinating research but there's not a damn thing that's come out of that tradition of research. The, the uh, I think the, the NIMH National Institute of Mental Health has spent, I think it was $20 billion on basic neuroscience research. And it, they haven't produced one single thing that's of clinical help to patients or psychotherapists. Right? And so they were operating on the assumption that if they studied brain, that would answer questions relevant to mind and brain both. It's not true. We've learned more about the brain. <laughs> we haven't learned anything about human psychological functioning from all this. Through brain. that form of testing. Yeah. But so so psychotherapy, yeah. the kind of therapy I practice, is not a relation between subject and object. It's a relationship between two subjects, right? Subjects meaning two, two centers of agency, two people with a sense of a sense of agency with intentionality with experience two people come together for the purpose of better making sense of one of one of the people's experience yeah and so when discoursing or entering into this mind-on-mind relationship what is the guiding principle or the uh, the ideology the framework the agent arena the network what is where do you start do you have like an idea of what a person is uh, that that you can 
help guide you? On well, we we have a lot of ideas, but there's something more important <laughs> than that. I, I, you know, okay. like, like I just I where do we start? We're, I think we're, we were tar- talking earlier. You know, psychoanalysis is three different things. It's a it's a vast body of knowledge. Right? You know, I mean, you know, we have more than a century of, of writings over you know generations of you know theorists trying their best mm-hmm. to shed light on you know the workings of the mind. And right, so body of knowledge, it's um, a set of therapies, plural, different forms of therapy that derive from this knowledge. And there's a certain ethos or sensibility about the work that's really, you know, above and beyond specific mm-hmm. therapy methods or, you know, a specific, you know, you know, a specific body of knowledge. And I think your question is about the ethos or the sensibility. And the ethos of the sensibility is we are in the business of helping people experience themselves as an agentic self. That is to say, um, Hmm. our goal is for the person to come to know themselves more fully and and central to the ethos. This is a word that's widely misunderstood, even in the therapy professions, is neutrality. The, the, The therapist occupies a neutral position. What, what it doesn't mean is the therapist is distant or disengaged you know, or cold. It means none of those things. What it means is ultimate respect for the individual's autonomy and agency. We are not in the business of trying to make decisions for another human being about what's right for them. We don't have a stake in the outcome or you know, what choices they make. What we have is a stake in them understanding themselves as fully and completely as possible, right? To know themselves more fully so that when, so when they make decisions for themselves, their decisions are based on a a fuller understanding of all of the different facets of their experience, Mm -hmm. right? right? So this is really important. We are neutral about what the patient eventually comes to decide for themselves, you know, comes to believe, comes to see as important and unimportant, you know, who they choose to you know, be in relationships with. We are on the side of self-knowledge. What the person does with the self-knowledge is up to them. So that's a very important value and ethos. And, you know, and I think things start to go amiss very quickly when the therapist comes in with an agenda or a value system of their own, you know, and says, I already know before I, before I, before I know this person, let alone understand them, you know, I already know what kinds of decisions are right or wrong or good or bad for them. Right. So there's a difference between therapy done with an agenda, right. Mm -hmm. That's intended to lead to, you know, sort of teleologically intended to lead to some, you know, particular outcome or state, right. We could call that agenda driven therapy. CBT is largely an agenda driven therapy versus what we call exploratory therapy, right. Where the agenda is simply to understand, to understand ourselves. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Neutrality doesn't come 
easy to humans. I, I suppose that's something everybody has to learn, especially in the context of psycho, uh, psychoanalysis and psychodynamic therapies. Is that true? Or uh, have you had to learn that over yeah, time? Yeah, it, it, it's a discipline because we're, yeah. we're humans. We're filled with opinions about, you know, everybody has an opinion about everything and, you know, yeah. of, of our preferences and our likes and our dislikes. You know, and you can't leave that behind entirely. You, you, you know, you, you can't say, well, I'm going to put on my therapy hat, so I'm not a human anymore. I'm, I don't have any values or preferences or assumptions about the world, or it doesn't work that way. But we hold on to an ideal that supersedes that in importance, right? So it's really a training and a discipline about uh, how do I how do I enter a therapy relationship as a therapist in a state of mind where, you know, the goal is to invite curiosity and exploration and elaboration of the patient's experience versus to impose an agenda of my own. And and it's, you know, it's imperfect, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, our, our, our humanity always intrudes and it should, but ideally we always keep our, our, you know, our eye on the ball and the eye of the ball is, you know, the purpose of this work is deeper self-knowledge. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and when the therapist comes with an agenda, a lot of bad things happen, can happen. There, there's an interesting uh, tension between agenda and non-agenda, and then it seems like your idea of the human being is founded on this thing called agency. Uh, agendas are probably related uh, etymologically to agency, but I, I like that. As a, somebody who writes stories or who loves narratives, the, my conception of the human being starts with will, and then yeah. intelligence and, and emotions are on top of this will. Yeah, I mean, to answer the question, you, you know, I, I got a little sidetracked here, but um, is, is there an overarching principle? Um, in terms of the method, in terms of how we go about the work and the state of mind of the therapist, we really we really try to approach the the work with you know something a Zen Buddhist would call beginner's mind, right? Here is another right. This is an encounter, a unique encounter between two human beings. It's not a set of procedures, techniques, interventions. It's not an assembly line. You know, on session one you do this, on session two you do this. It's a process of exploration and an inquiry for two people. And I'm coming in, and I might have all my own experiences and assumptions about the world. Not might, you know, I do. But this is another human being who I don't know. Right? And can I set aside you know, what what I think I know? You know, and and come to it with a place of like Zen beginner's mind to be receptive to what might emerge in this very unique encounter that's not like any other encounter with any other person. You never treat the same patient twice. You can never do the same therapy twice. And so the therapist really has to operate from a position of, you know, what I would call profound humility. Right? I don't know this person. I'm here to discover it. And then, you know, I have methods and tools for how to go about the work of, of coming to discover the person more fully and helping them to discover themselves more fully. Mm-hmm. We go back to agency um, and, uh, with a, a metaphor. I would, uh, most people don't know this anymore. The, 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 the very, very beginning, a hundred years ago, a hundred plus years ago of the psychoanalytic tradition started with the simplest concept imaginable. 
and 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 this is actually no longer this is not central to psychoanalytic thinking anymore this is you know this is this is past history i mean it, it's like um you know psychoanalysis today is is to freud the way evolutionary biology is to darwin <laughs> you know i mean you know he sort of he, you know he, he sort of laid the first brick of the foundation but what we do today is you know is, has evolved you know far away from you know what what freud as an individual person thought 100 years ago but but here's the really the, the, the first brick was the very simple recognition let's say you know in a sense we are the authors of all of our thoughts all of our actions right all of our behavior i mean and, you know it's it's us doing it there's no one else doing it and and Freud made a really, really simple observation. And he and the observation was that when people talk about what they think or feel or do, sometimes they were use the word I and they claim ownership of it. Say, I did this, I thought this, I wanted this, I didn't want this, I love that, I hate that. Right. So there's a sort of a, a claiming of agency and ownership and you know, and, and uh, um, we recognize it and include it as ourselves. Sometimes, and it was the same word in German and English, sometimes we talk about things that we think, say, do, believe, and we disavow ownership of it, and we use the word it. Right? We don't say, I felt this way. Right? We might say, you know, it, it just you know, it just happened. That's not really me. It just came out that way. You know, it wasn't me. That was, it, it was the alcohol speaking, right? It, it wasn't me, right? So that we experience some things, some aspects of our own, our own mind as belonging to us. And we disavow other things. And we say, you know, and speak about them as if they don't belong to us. Right? And that was the beginning of that was the beginning of psychoanalytic thinking. Um, hmm. And the words, Freud used the words I and it to refer to experience that we, you know, that we claim and, and you know, claim ownership of versus experience that we you know, disavow. And those words were later mistranslated into English. They become they became the, the ego and the id, but those oh, weren't yeah. the words Freud actually used. Oh, so the and, ego and the id have uh, been become encrusted with this narrative that very very really simple very very crusted but the words freud used were words that any you know any german you know school child would use i you know i in it and and then he made a famous sort of famous saying that people don't understand this anymore is that the goal of this work is where it was i shall become meaning that the things that are going on sort of outside of our control, outside of our awareness, outside of our sense of agency, we want them to be included in our sense of who we are yeah. and become part of our agency. I mean, so, so, you know, the mm -hmm. fundamental insight that from which all of this work follows is we don't fully know our own hearts and minds. Therefore, we're not masters of our own house. And the more we can know ourselves, the more we can become masters of our house, meaning you know, the more there's a sense of personal agency as we live our lives, go about our lives. Right? So it's less about 
you know, these things happen. It happened to me. It, you know, it worked out that way. Mm-hmm. You know, right? external circumstances are, you know, are sort of responsible for, you know, for, for our outcomes. More about how much can we include? How much more can we include within the realm of personal responsibility? Things that we have choices about. And it could be the case that done the wrong way, this causes somebody to become hubristic or tries to swallow the whole world into the eye, say that it's all me. Very, It could go so far as to become slopsistic. No, I mean, done wrong. And, and surely there's a lot of bad therapy, but, but no, <laughs> there's more to the tradition, which is um, our sense of who we are we're, we're, de- we're designed as we're social animals more so than any other animal, right? Human infants have the longest period of dependency of any animal in the, in the you know, any creature in the animal kingdom. So um, our sense of self exists in a relational context. We, everything about us, about us psychologically is forged in the context of attachment relationships, right? We don't, we don't really, there's a, there's a way in which we, you, you could say, mine doesn't really exist in, in, you know, outside of a relational context, or at least we can't really know anything about somebody else's mind <laughs> removed from a relational context. Um, and that actually has very important implications for psychotherapy because right, what develops in the context of attachment relationships can only be changed in a meaningful way in the context of an attachment relationship. So psychotherapy is much more than a set of techniques or interventions or methods right, is, a, is a relationship. The relationship is the starting point. It's the relationship that makes it possible to do this work of exploration. You can't do it in a vacuum. You can't do it solipsistically. So when we talk about attachment relationships the, and, and Freud, we're talking about uh, the very beginning, the very first uh, huge pillars of attachment, which would be mostly mother and father, too. Uh, but probably mother's the floor. Mother, the first, mother being the first attachment. Yeah. Father, siblings, and, and then siblings, early and then, attachments. And then it goes outwards from there. The psycho, uh, the psychoanalyst... <laughs> I never want to mispronounce that, but um, they have another role that could be, it it could be just as strong or it could be uh, just as powerful because it is a very intimate relationship. It's not a a business transaction. And by intimate, it becomes a part of all of these different things that are very, um, very primordial in the human being. All the hydraulics of, and I use that word metaphorically, understanding that there is a hydraulic model, uh, but, uh, you know, just the eros and and curiosity and love and fear and shame and all that stuff. And so the psychologist comes in here. Love and hate and and aggression and, you know, and animosity and and destructive impulses. They're they're all part of being human. We can't disavow any of them. That that goes back to this idea of I and it. People want to talk about, you know, they're, they're sort of hateful, destructive impulses as if they don't belong to us. Well, if we treat them like they don't belong to us, we're not really in, we're not masters of our own house. Right? They're going to come out in ways that, other parts of this might not might, might not choose. So I just want to add to what you're saying. Yes, everything you said and more. Yeah, and that sea of feels and dynamics uh, 
once you enter into a relationship with that as the as a therapist, as the analyst, uh, I, I like the idea of it seems like that that neutrality clothes you or, or, or protects you from from becoming absorbed into it or becoming too attached to all of that attachment stuff. You do get absorbed into it as the therapist. There's really no way not to. But but the skill, the real skill of the therapist is can we can we be mindful of that as it happens? Is there a way that we can shift or oscillate between experiencing the relationship with the other person? Right? We we have to can we immerse ourselves in the here and now of the experience? What, what is it like to be with this person? Hmm. Know, without an agenda, without trying to, without trying to direct them in some way, can we can we enter into the experience with them, and can we step back from being in the experience in order to reflect on it and understand something, you know, in, in a way that might make a difference. And um, you know, I don't know if this is intentional, but this is a beautiful segue that you just gave me to, to explain something like crucial about this form of therapy that that just isn't widely understood. We say that, you know, the relationship is central, right? To, central to good therapy. Research shows that the strongest predictor of, of a good outcome is the quality of the relationship. But people outside this field don't really understand what we really mean when we say relationship. <laughs> it, it, it's not, do you get along? Do you like each other? Do you understand each other? It's, there, there's something much more to it than that. So, so here's, here's the, the basic concept. Um, our, our earliest formative relationships are service templates, not not necessarily conscious, but they become our templates for for how we experience our subsequent relationships. And the templates are largely invisible to us. We don't know. We don't know our own templates. Um, I, I mean, since they're there from the very beginning, from our earliest formative relationships, you know, uh, there is an invisible to us as water to a fish. Right? A fish has no concept of water because it's never experienced anything other than water. Right? So, so our earliest attachments um, form our relationship patterns that we tend to repeat and recreate in one way or another throughout our entire lives for better or worse, right? And um, hmm. so psychological difficulties that bring, bring people to therapy are rooted in, in relationships. You know, I mean, show me, you know, show me a problem that brings someone to therapy and I'll show you a problem that's playing out in the context of relationships um, or that, you know, was forged in the context of their relationships or is interfering with their ability to have relationships, right? Relationships are, are, are central. So, so we could say that the person experiences, you know, looks at relationships, looks at self and other in relationship, relationships through these lenses that were formed from their earliest attachments. That has crucial implications for psychotherapy because when a person enters into psychotherapy, they're entering into a new relationship and they bring those lenses and those templates with them. And what happens is in therapy, in one way or another, the person, the patient, ends up recreating their relationship patterns in this new relationship with a new person, the therapist. They start playing out familiar patterns, not intentionally, not knowingly. Much of this happens unconsciously, but it happens consistently and predictably. And that's what makes this kind of therapy possible, because the goal of the therapy isn't just to play out the same old 
you know, if the person is coming to therapy, there is something about the old patterns that, right, that is causing pain or limitation or, or, or suffering. Right? So, so there's a, a decision point, and, and the, the decision point is therapy or something other than therapy. And what makes it therapy is we're not going to just recreate the same painful and self-defeating patterns with a new person because they're being created with a new person in therapy, that's what makes it possible to recognize them, understand them, understand the patterns, and rework the patterns. So the relationship with the therapist becomes a kind of a laboratory and a sanctuary where it becomes possible to see what we do in relationships that cause difficulties. And so the therapist brings to light or by asking questions or by signifying these things, they become conscious. And then is there a process of once things become conscious, do we then tie those things to perhaps negative states? You're, you're, you're replicating this relationship. It, it depends on, it depends on the problem and the person. Yeah. yeah it's, it's not, yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. really that formulaic, but yeah. <laughs> Things that are happening automatically, you know, habitually outside of awareness, um, you know, help the person to come recognize, to, 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 to be able to recognize them. And, you know, before you recognize them, there's nothing you can do. You can't, you can't work with something, you know, you can't work with it when you don't know what it is. So, you know, people come to therapy and anybody who's been doing this work for a while, I mean, we're, we're, we're I'm still blown away by you know, the, the wildly divergent kinds of reactions that I get from patients. I'm the same person. You know, it's not like I'm, it's like I'm a different person from one patient. I'm, I'm me. Hmm. You know, some people see me as, a, some patients see me as a, you know, sort of wise, benevolent authority, you know, who will, you know, who will, you know, uh, impart wisdom and, and you know, and, and take care of them. Uh, some people see me as a, you know, an adversary to, you know, keep at arm's length and, you know, defeat. Hmm. And like, I, I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have an impact on, uh, on them because it could only be destructive, right? So the patient comes into therapy and, and it's not like conscious necessarily, but they create a relationship in which they're treating me as an adversary, right? Some people think I'm, you know, some people think I'm sexy and alluring. Some people think I'm the dullest person in the world, right? So, you know, we see there's a, a it's an ancient quotation. I've heard it attributed to different sources, but we see the world not so much as it is, but as we are. And that applies directly to the therapy situation. I mean, the patient sees the therapist, not just as who the therapist is, but they see them through their own lenses. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what we do in therapy is we, we try to help the person to become aware of the lenses. And, and it may be very as simple as... Um, if a patient comes with the expectation that I'm going to tell them what to do, that I know better, I, it, it may be as simple as saying, just acknowledging that in words. It's like, you know, it, it seems that, you know, it seems that you're hoping that I would know the right answers for you, that I would be able to tell you what to do and things would be better as a result. The overwhelming likelihood is when somebody approaches therapy that way, they've spent their lives being told what to do by someone else, and that's how they ended up where they are, you know, and right with you know with you know 
symptoms or feeling stuck in life or feeling or, or, or suffering or some kind of emotional distress, right? So their solution to the problem, right? Somebody will know what's right for me and tell me and then I'll do it is actually the source of the problem right? because, because it's gotten in the way of finding out for themselves who they are and what's right for them. So the work really has to start with acknowledging, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you know, you, seem you know you seem to have the expectation or you seem to hope that i'll I'll have the answers for you and i'll know what's right for you and you know often the patient will say something like well yeah you know you're a therapist isn't that what you do here (laughs) right and then an entire discussion unfolds around that you know i mean isn't that what i'm paying you for isn't that you know to give me advice Mm -hmm. and then you really have to introduce the notion but you know you've had a lot of people give you advice and it's generally not worked out well for you. Hmm. Right? So the, the person is still a pretty far way away from recognizing that looking for someone else to tell them the answers is in fact causing some of the problems they're looking for help with. But but that's a start. Or the patient who comes in and, you know, views the therapist in a, in a kind of adversarial way, you know, the, the, you'll say something and the patient will sort of, you know, bat it away without even, it, it's not that what I say to the patient is, is necessarily right. I, I never tell people what their experience is because I don't know it. What I do is, you know, offer ideas or hypotheses to think about together. And hmm. some patient will sort of bat it away, make short work of it without thinking about it, right? The idea isn't to think about it, you know, consider, does this fit? Does this not fit? How does it fit? The idea is, the idea is to um, fend it off. And generally, the person isn't necessarily aware that it's not their conscious intent, but they're doing it. So, you know, therapy might begin with something as simple as, um, you know, there's a way that you seem to be treating me as as if as treating me like someone who might be dangerous to you, someone you can protect, you know, someone you need to protect yourself from. What do you mean? That's not how I see you. Well, you know, I, I understand it. It's not how you, you see me, but I, I can't help but notice that, you know, several times I've, I've, you know, suggested something for us to think about, and you've treated it as if it was something, you know, like harmful or dangerous or potentially dangerous. You need to get rid of. Like, what do you mean? Say, well, you know, a moment ago I suggested blah blah blah, and mm-hmm. you know, and it seems like you know, you 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 couldn't dismiss the idea fast enough, and maybe the idea was wrong, maybe it didn't fit you, but I can't help but notice that you were you know you were dismissing it before you'd given yourself a chance to kind of reflect on it and consider it. There's a reason for that. And the patient might say, what, "What what's the reason?" And the answer is usually at least early in therapy. Well. You know, I, I don't know, but you know, it's something we might be able to find out together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And why do we need to find it out together? Because the overwhelming likelihood is if the person is doing it with me, they're doing it in other relationships in ways that interfere with the capacity for intimacy, you know, connection, mutuality, you know, joy, right? They're, they're living in a world that they experience as, you know, cold or, or hostile or threatening in some way. Here it is. Here it is in the therapy situation. It sounds like you could be 
um, teaching through practice or, or modeling a behavior through discussion to enable people to begin to speak with themselves in the same way or start to question and have a relationship with themselves. And I wonder if that, um, that, that is, yes. That so that's one of the different. outcomes, right? That we we learn a way of reflecting on our own experience to understand ourselves more fully. And one of the, um, one of the benefits of this kind of therapy, you know, what I would say is meaningful therapy is that the person develops the capacity to reflect on themselves in that way after therapy is over, right? It, it becomes a part of it becomes part of their own capacities so that when therapy is really good, it's, you know, it's not like something changed in therapy and there you have it, you know, it's done. The person changes, their relationship to themselves change. And all of a sudden they're able to, you know, they have access to a broader range of experience. They're able to think about and reflect on their experience in different ways. So that is something that stays with the person going forward. And, and actually research shows that, that, um, the benefits of other forms of therapy, more you know, prescriptive or agenda-driven therapies, uh, tend to decay after therapy ends. The benefits of this kind of therapy, psychodynamic or psychoanalytic therapy, tend to grow after therapy ends, right? because something something fundamental, you know, has shifted psychologically for the person, hmm. and you know, and the benefits of that continue to accrue over time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The knowing oneself, I think it was Socrates who put that uh, dirty thought into <laughs> our culture. Um, it, it's a scary process. Uh, I, I just just even thinking about thinking about myself as as we speak and like starting to examine myself. I'm like, eh, what? I don't. Uh, uh, it's kind of scary. It's icky. Um, and uh, becoming in a relationship with myself that is based on I want to say the word love. Um, I, my dad just visited and we had a long discussion about uh, his belief system. He's a Trinitarian. And so he, he believes that uh, God isn't one entity and created the world, but God is a relationship and everything in the world that God's created is all in relationship. And that entire relationship is based on love. That's his, that's my dad's way of thinking. It makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and I sense that too, even though you're not using the same words, there's uh, there is some sort of positive, even though you say there's neutrality, it seems like there's a deep loving um, that's going on that, that you're teaching and that you're giving. Is that true? Are you cognizant of that? Is that uh, problematic even? Um, I'm, I'm wary of using the word love because it has such, you know, so many different meanings for different people in con different contexts, it's a very charged word mm -hmm. and it could be easily misunderstood, but, but yes. Um, you know, when we were talking about, Right. There's the, the psycho psychoanalytic therapy as a body of knowledge, as um, a set of therapies, plural, and a certain ethos or sensibility. And part of the ethos is 
we're relational animals. We're happiest. We function best in in the context of of connection, interpersonal connection. And you know, for most uh, people, come to therapy for infinite reasons. But for most people, most of the time, you know, something is causing unhappiness or suffering or dysfunction. Most of the time, something is getting in the way of really connecting meaningfully and deeply with other people. Right? It's sort of very central to this. Can we, right, what is the person's capacity for intimacy and, and for mutuality? And what, what I mean by mutuality is, you know, the, the person is subject, not object, right? They have their intentions, motivations, feelings, experience, and so does the other person other people that they're in a relationship with. So so one of the things that we're working for, one marker of psychological health is a capacity for mutual relationships, meaning relationships, you know, that that relationships that um, in which we can bring, you know, the entirety of our own experience in which we can recognize the entirety of the other person's experience, right? Two subjectivities right together. You know, maybe a kind of a crude way of saying it is you can have a relationship that's a two-way street. You, you, you see and hear and understand one another. It's not one directional. And, but I mean, without that, without that, we're, we're, we're something less than fully human. We're something less than our best selves. We'd say that the, the goal of the work is, is for people to be able to become the, the, the best versions of themselves. And 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 it, and it's not so much that it's not so much that we you know have this agenda or this goal. This is where they should get. It, it, it's more that we start paying attention to the obstacles, things that get in the way of of people having that. You you said one of the first bricks of this entire chain of uh, therapies uh, was that. Freud's insight that there's this I and it, and we need to include the it and the I. What is the other, the the other human being, and how is that affected by um, owning more of my its? Do it? Do I? Uh, well, the more, there... yeah. So I mean, you know, the more, the more appreciation and ownership of you know the, the total totality of our experience. The, the more we know ourselves, the greater our capacity to know somebody else. We're less insistent, I don't mean consciously insistent, but less insistent that the other person must conform to our early templates and play out, you know, the roles of 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 our early template, play a certain role in a relationship. Right now, we can have ideally a more mutual relationship that can involve and unfold, you know, on its own terms. Right, right, and that's a kind of freedom. Also, we have the freedom to fully enter a relationship with another person as they are, you know, versus having to repeatedly play out certain relationship patterns where I can't see the other person as they are, or I require them to play a certain role. This is happening in a lot, and you know, like especially now in the in the, in the culture wars and their you know cultural discourse, it, it, it's you know, there's a lot of assumptions and projections about who the other guy is and we don't relate to the other person as a whole person we don't actually you know i'm talking about the worst aspects of the culture wars mm-hmm. the other the other person becomes a projection screen you know for us to attribute 
you know, all kinds of bad, malevolent, you know, unpleasant things, especially un- bad, malevolent, unpleasant things that we don't want to know in ourselves, like the other mm-hmm. person through through the mechanism of projection is seen as the repository of these things and you know and now we can hate them and and feel okay about about that so something gets damaged in the capacity in the capacity to to come to know another human being as another human being right you know right versus as a um you know Versus as someone to put into some pre-existing box that already exists in our mind. That mechanism of projection is a pretty profound concept. Did that originate uh, within Freud or his, his of course circle? It did. <laughs> Most, this is what is people that, don't realize. You know, it's become very fashionable to bash psychoanalysis and bash Freud in particular. And and there's two levels of misunderstanding in that. You know, one is modern, you know, contemporary psychoanalysis is, is isn't. Freud and any more than, you know, evolutionary biology is Darwin or, you know, contemporary astrophysics is, you know, is, is, is Copernicus, right? Mm. <laughs> right? So, I, I mean, this is the only profession I know of where, where, where people read, you know, college textbooks. And instead of talking about the field as it is today, right, the textbooks, pre, you know, present something that, that Freud as an individual person, you know, said in 1910. <laughs> And, and somehow will leave students with the impression that that's what people think and do today. So, right? so, so that's one misunderstanding. The second is, there's an enormous, the, the, the language that, that comes from psychoanalysis is just part of, 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 you know, it's part of our culture and yeah. part of our communication. And people don't realize that it originated from that. So, so we have a lot of people, especially in the therapy professions, who like to, you know, sort of bash the psychoanalytic tradition, Right. While in fact embracing, you know, it's sort of core central concepts, sometimes under different words. So any, sorry for the digression, long answer to yes, projection is, is fundamentally a psychoanalytic concept. It's a defense. Uh, could you explain that then? Why is it a defense? How do, how do, why do human beings do that? So, so every single defense ultimately, you know, ultimately derives from you know, the, the recognition there are things about ourselves that are difficult for us to know and acknowledge. And it goes back to I and it, you know, this is, you know, <laughs> this is me. I, you know, I say, I, you know, I claim ownership of it. And then there's it, there's things I do and say and happen. And I experience them as happening to me. And I'm sort of deaf, dumb and blind to, to my, my role in it. I mean, so, so at the heart of, you know, the idea of, of, defenses is there are things about ourselves that are you know threatening or you know discordant in some way that we would prefer not to know and and we have this vast wealth of ways that we go about not knowing things about ourselves and so so one of them is you know if, if there's something about me that that's unacceptable and i i can't allow myself to be consciously aware of it what becomes of it it doesn't go away, right? It, it, it's, I mean, one of the things, if we've learned anything in, in psychology, out of sight is not out of mind. What we brush away, you know, in one way or another, it finds expression in some form, right? It has an effect. So, so projection is we have something about ourselves that, um, that we don't want to know. You know, suppose it's, 
let's say, our, our, our own capacity for, for hate or cruelty or destructiveness. We, we, you know, we want to hurt someone. Well, you know, that, that's very, very inconsistent with a lot of people's you know, self-concept. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm caring, I, you know, I'm loving, I'm, I'm working for you know, noble purposes, I, I'm interested in making the world better for people. You know, I, I don't have these hateful, you know, these, these hateful feelings and impulses. Well, the fact of the matter is, if we're human, we do have them. So one thing that might become of them is, you know, if we were to sort of break down what's going on unconsciously, these feelings aren't me. I don't have them. So, so where are they? They must belong to you. So I see in you, you know, feeling thoughts, feelings, impulses that I'm not able to recognize in myself. And, you know, sometimes what you know, so sometimes what I project doesn't even remotely fit. Right? It's, it's, like, it's like the person is treating you as a projection screen and they see you and treat you as, as someone that you, someone you're not, someone you can't, not even recognizable to yourself. And, and the more disturbed the person is, right? There's different levels of personality organization. There's higher levels of functioning and lower levels of functioning. But, you know, at lower levels, at, at higher levels of functioning, there's some capacity for reflection. Right. The, 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 the person might say, you know, you're, you're angry at me. And, um, you know, and you might say, you know, no, I'm not angry. Well, you know, but you're acting angry. And then you might have a whole discussion around it. And, and but the person who's doing the projecting, there's some room, there's some capacity to call into question their own perception, right? Right. To hold on to the, 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 the you know, the, the recognition of the possibility, you know, maybe I misperceived this. Maybe I got this wrong. Maybe I misunderstood something. Maybe I read something into it, right? So at a higher level of functioning, there's a capacity to reflect on our own experience. As you get to more, you know, disturbed or more primitive mm -hmm. levels of functioning, there's a level of certainty, you know, categorical certainty about it. It's not, are you angry at me? You're acting, you seem to be acting angry, which you know, can, kind of contains a, a question. You are angry. It's a fact. It's not open to question. In fact, it's not just that you're angry. You are an angry person. You are an evil person, right? You are a destructive person. And, and, right, and there is simply no room to reflect on that perception and consider the possibility, or maybe it really doesn't fit, right? So, so hmm. one of the things that that happens at fairly disturbed levels of functioning is um, there's there's a term for it in um, a theoretical term. Uh, uh, it's called psychic equivalence, and psychic equivalence is a failure to appreciate that you know what we think and feel is not synonymous with external reality, right? Thoughts and feelings are thoughts and feelings. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they may reflect, you know, something, you know, truth about external reality to a greater or lesser extent, but, you know, they're absolutely not, not you know, what we think or believe or feel is not synonymous with reality. When our, when our you know, right, right, capacity mm -hmm. to recognize that distinction collapses, right? um, <laughs> you know, we act as if if we think it or feel it, it's factually true. It's a recipe for disaster psychologically. When we speak about projection, we usually speak about projecting 
all of my shadow or all my gross stuff, all the stuff that doesn't. Yeah, well, we, we tend not to project the things. We, there's exceptions. We tend not to project the things we, we like about ourselves and, you know, include in our sense of self. When the things we the things we mean when we say I, we, we project the things that, you know, we, we project the things that we want to disavow. So, you know, yeah, generally negative. So does it, does, what about conditions under which, and I'm, just shooting from the hip here, just remembering when I was a 16-year-old, total hopeless, hopeless romantic, and I would just project all of this stuff onto one woman and then another, well, one young woman and another young woman. I wonder if there's a, there's positive project, projections. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you can project anything. Right? I mean, um, I mean, is, and is that mechanic different than the negative projections? Not, not necessarily. I mean, we're, we're projecting a, a wish or an impulse or a feeling. Um, you know, the example I gave about, you know, hate is tends to play out in public discourse. But, yeah. you know, I, I desire this woman. I'm attracted to her. It's easy to project that and imagine, well, you know, she desires me. And, and you know, and then selective attention and, and, and confirmation bias enters into it. Then we tend to look for things, mm-hmm. you know, that, 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 that support what we already want to believe. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a pretty, you know, benign kind of projection, right? That that's within the normal realm of, you know, of functioning. And then, you know, there's more disturbed forms of projection that that are much mm-hmm. costlier. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and you know, I, I think that it's important that you brought that up because all of these, you know, sort of the idea of unconscious mental life that we don't fully know ourselves, defensive processes, these aren't concepts that apply, you know, to others. You know, sick people, disturbed people, people who need therapy. These are concepts that apply to humans, right? This is how we're built. We all do all of these things all of the time. And that's why, like, it drives me crazy when somebody says, do I need therapy? I don't know what you need. Like, need, need, like, need doesn't really, isn't really part of my thought. You know, the, the, I, I don't know if you need therapy. The, the, the question is, you know, are there ways that you're getting in your own way or tripping over your own feet in life, um, you know, or interfering with pleasure, satisfaction, meaning, intimacy, you know, in ways you don't realize? Could you benefit from, you know, understanding yourself more fully? Right? And, you know, the answer, the answer for most people is yes. This might be out of the blue. It might not be. I don't know why I'm thinking about this, but I want to ask you, since I got you on the couch right now, what about humor? What's what? What's up with wit and humor? Is there a, a, a like a conception of what that does for human beings, or what that reveals? Yeah, it's a. <clears throat> I mean, it's a. It's a. It's a requires a, a pretty mature level of, of psychological functioning <clears throat> because because humor necessarily involves the capacity to step back. And, you know, sort of step back and see ourselves in a slightly different light, right? And to be be surprised by that. Um, So my, uh, I mean, besides being a a clinician, a a psychotherapist, I'm I'm also, I'm also a published researcher in the field. I'm I'm one of the main researchers in the area of of personality. And one of the things that's come out of our research is we, um, we sort of developed a, 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 an instrument, a psychological test that, that it's designed. Of course, it falls somewhat short of the ideal, but it's designed to provide a, a really comprehensive picture of somebody's psychological and personality functioning. One of the things that we did with this instrument um, is we used it to study 
psychological health. And we we came up empirically, you know, not not sitting around thinking about it. I mean, this is empirical data from studying thousands of of patients and thousands of patient therapist pairs of what are the characteristics that make up psychological health, healthy psychological functioning. And um, so, you know, sort of got this list of what is it that what is it that knowledgeable therapists are really sort of working toward? What is it patients want for themselves? And just coincidentally, one of the items on the list is, is humor, meaning the capacity to you know, sort of you know, step back and take perspective on yourself and, and, and others. Um, front and center on the list is the capacity for you know, uh, meaningful, mutual attachments and intimate relationships. And so this is, uh, you're, you're speaking about functioning or you're, we're researching functioning. Whenever a personality comes up, the first thing that a lot of probably people probably think of is, um, personality types and, uh, you know, everybody's got like their Enneagram or something like that. Do you put stock in that? Do you, you were no, speaking specifically uh, no, about most, functioning? No, most of it is bunk. There, there are, so this is what I study. There are personality types, but they're not the ones that are in popular culture. There, there, there's, um, and so, so this tradition of therapy, I mean, we've, we've had more than a century of people, I mean, theorists, therapists, I mean, deep thinkers, observing, de- devoting their lifetime to observing and thinking about and trying to understand people, including, you know, people who run into difficulties. And, you know, over the course of many generations, um, we've come up with this, this typology, this, this, there, there, there are, you know, you know, in, 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 in many ways, people are more similar than different. There are certain pretty recognizable known personality styles. They're not, they're not diagnoses. It's not that there's something wrong with you. Everybody has a personality and a personality style. And there's, there's 10 or 11 like known established personality styles that, that, you know, have come out of clinical observation over, you know, over many generations the research that I and my colleagues did is we found a way to study it scientifically. And actually what we were able to do is confirm empirically, yeah, these personality styles really exist, but they're not the ones on, you know, they're, they're not the personality styles you'd find on the, um, I don't know, what's that Myers-Briggs type indicator. They're, they're not, they're not what people are familiar with. Okay. Do you have any, uh, or have you spoken with any, um, theorists uh, or do you guys have any hypotheses of how or why human beings uh, shook out uh, psychodynamically to have these 10 different kind of types of do you guys have any guesses about yeah i mean they all have fitness or just how the brain well i don't know brain but i mean they all have development or meant developmental origins and you know ultimately traceable to our our relational patterns and our our very earliest formative relationships so they're they're more imprinted than uh emergent I'm not sure what you mean by imprinted they they aren't uh they aren't wired in the brain they're developed uh in relationship to uh, environmental circumstances. They're developed in relation. Well, it's, you know, I mean, it's complex. There's there's sort of temperamental factors that we're we're born with, right? I mean, there are just differences in in temperament, you know, that are are born. Uh, Then then there's differences 
you know, then, you know, many aspects of us psychologically are formed by the inter interaction of, you know, these innate characteristics or temperament, the interaction of that with, you know, our, our, our you know, our early experiences and our early relationships, right? So there's a very complicated relationship between, you know, sort of innate biological predispositions and what becomes of them, you know, as we start to be psychologically shaped in the context of attachment relationships. And, um, hmm. you know, I, I guess what you can say is that there are certain developmental challenges that every human being has to navigate as a function of being human. And there are so many, you know, so many sort of relatively expectable pathways that these challenges tend to get, you know, tend mm -hmm. to get resolved, which which result in, in personality types or, or, or styles. Um, but, you know, that, that's sort of a broad, they're, they're broad categories in therapy, if I recognize, here, let me, let me make it more, more concrete. So, in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, they took the personality styles that were understood in the psychoanalytic literature, um, ratcheted them up in severity, described them in their most pathological possible form, and turned them into disorders because everything in the book had to be a disorder. Like, like how, how can a personality be? How can your personality be a disease? It's not something you have, you know, like, like the flu or cancer. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's who you are. So the DSM already, you know, really, really distorted how many people in the field think about and understand personality. Um, every single one of the personality styles has healthier and, you know, more, you know healthier and unhealthy variations. There's high functioning versions of every personality style. And there's low functioning versions. Mm -hmm. So, so you know, let's take a paranoid personality style. It's a sus suspiciousness. It's a, a, a sort of underlying default assumption. I can't really trust what I see. There's something else going on beneath the surface. Maybe something you know nefarious going on beneath the surface. But that's the essence, or it's part of the essence of the style. Well, you know, let's think about, you know, healthy and unhealthy variants of that. Um, if that's part of your outlook on the world, you know, you're, you're sort of always looking for, you know, you're always looking for what's behind the surface of things. You might be a scientist, right? You're going to discover, you know, unknown causes. You might be a brilliant investigative journalist. You might become a detective, right? It, right? It, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way of functioning that has certain strengths, or if it takes, you know, an unhealthy turn, you know, it's mm. an assumption that everyone you meet is, you know, is, is hostile and malevolent and out to harm you. And then, right, then you experience the world as, as cold and hostile, right? And I mean, it, it's a pathway to alienation and depression, right? So, but, but, but it all starts with the person sort of organized around this theme of, mm. I can't fully trust what I see. There's something more here. That, um, thinking about it that way, so I was asking, once we start to typify human beings, it, there's there's healthy and unhealthy ways of going about with that knowledge or, or uh, producing that knowledge. And your example is really great because you could see that if, given everything else being equal and uh, there isn't like severe trauma, the difference between unhealthy and healthy or, uh, you know, 
productive and unproductive paranoia would have to do with the tool or would have to do with the perspective. Uh, do you have a scientific uh, tool toolkit to apply and to test your assumptions or do you not have a toolkit to apply and to test your assumptions? Um, and so, yeah, I, I guess that's one way to think about it. I, I, I would say prior to that is prior to that is what you and I were talking about just a little just a little earlier which is you know do you have the capacity to call into question your own perceptions of things and reflect on them or do you you know assume that you know what you feel is automatically true there there, there are different levels of functioning so if you have a paranoid style personality mm-hmm. style coupled with a capacity for you know reflection on our own experience coupled with a, a, a capacity for intimacy and connection with other human other humans right right then that style may be channeled in very productive ways mm-hmm. if you have a paranoid style in the absence of a capacity to call into question our own experience and reflect on it in the absence of the capacity for you know genuine you know genuine you know interpersonal connection with people um you know, then you're in for a world of trouble and symptoms. Mm-hmm. Uh, another example would be a narcissistic style, right? I mean, especially on social media, people like it's like somehow narcissist has become this like meaningless grab bag term for anybody mm-hmm. that we experience as, you know, as, as manipulative or, or destructive or I mean, narcissist, narcissism in psychology means something very, very specific. And, and it's not that, right? uh, I mean, the way it's used in popular culture is just, 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 uh, not it's, clinical. <laughs> it's not how a knowledgeable psychologist or psychiatrist okay. or psychoanalyst understands the words. So, you know, somebody who has a narcissistic style, a healthy version of a narcissistic style, well, you know, that's the person who can, you know, with the confidence to dream the really big dreams, Right? The person who can imagine, you know, something grander and better than anything that's ever been before. They might become, they might become, you know, founders. They might become Steve Jobs, right? They're innovators, they're founders, they're leaders, or, you know, an unhealthy variant of a narcissistic style. You're self-centered, you know, oblivious to other people's experiences, right? And, and, um, and, incapable of having a mutual relationship because you think the world revolves around you that is, uh, you're having you're forcing me to rewrite what i thought narcissist meant how does it how does narcissism give way to the big dreams and ideals why why are we using narcissist as the way to you know the, the myth of narcissist well because your concept of narcissist probably comes from popular culture and um Narcissism, it's actually very complex. It's not one single thing. And if I said that, I, I, I you know, it has one specific meaning. If I said that, I, I misspoke. I think I did say that. Uh, I recently read a book about narcissism. Uh, the, the, the authors wrote, narcissism is like a many-headed hydra because it takes so many different forms and so many different, so many different, um, so many different variations and different forms and different variations in the same person at different times in different contexts so it's incredibly complex it's it's an investment in positive regard in 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 the self so 
Think about, okay. you know, I can do something, I can accomplish something that nobody else has ever done. And I really believe in it. I can build something that's never been built before. I can create something that's never been created. I can envision, you know, I can envision a, a you know, a, a, a different way of being that nobody has ever succeeded in bringing about before. Right? I mean, that takes a certain you know, narcissistic confidence because so many other people would would you know, say, well, you know, that's a pipe dream, that's unrealistic, right? And somebody with a, a healthy version of narcissism, oh, I don't care if somebody else thinks it's realistic or unrealistic or pie in the sky. It's like, no, I believe I can do it. And they might, you know, if they're sort of charismatic about it, they might get other people on board. I believe in you. I believe we can do it. And, right. If it's a healthy version of that, maybe it leads to, you know, Apple and iPhones. And if it's an unhealthy version of it, maybe it leads to, you know, Jim Jones and mass suicide. Mm-hmm. Right. So right, all of these personalities, you know, concepts and styles aren't inherently good or bad. Right. They're, they're, they're sort of psychological themes and patterns that the person is organized around. Mm-hmm. for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. Why did you uh, get into this? You seem like you really like it. How did you... How Psychology did you in general yeah. or, or psychoanalysis or personality? Well, what we're talking about and everything that we're talking about, what got you on the path to to doing this work? Yeah, how did I become a psychologist? Yeah. How did you know that that was... Or what was the moment where you started to feel you, you, you're exhibiting joy? Did you? When did you yeah, become I'm aware really of this? Yeah, I'm really into this. I to me, like this is to me, this is the most you know, interesting and fascinating thing in the world. Why we are the way we are? Why we do what we do as people? Why we feel the way we do? I mean, like, I mean, yeah, I, I, you're, and that you're right. why could be go. You could get into philosophy rather than this. That that why is a big prompt. How, why? Well, philosophy, philosophy, you know, kind of operates. My understanding, I I don't, you know, I I don't have a deep background in philosophy, so maybe a real philosopher would say otherwise. But philosophy operates, you know, at a a level of abstraction. Psychology operates at the level of very personal. Um, Mm -hmm. um, You could, you could have become a novelist instead. uh, Yeah, but I'm way, but I'm way too lazy to work that hard. (laughs) <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you a story. Um, I've, I've told it on a podcast before. It's a, a personal, embarrassing, but I've told it before. I'll tell it here. So I was a college student. I actually didn't start off as a, a psychology major. I was an economics major, largely because I didn't really understand then what a psychologist was. <laughs> like, like I thought when I was like, a, you know, in high school, I thought like a psychologist was something like a second rate psychiatrist. And I had, I wasn't interested in medicine. I knew I didn't want to be a medical doctor. Like blood and guts makes me queasy. And I knew I wasn't going to be a second rate anything. So I never even considered studying psychology, but I was fascinated by it. I you know, hmm. read books about psychology when I was a child. I read books about dreams. And um, if there was a single turning point, the, the, the kind of crystallized things was an experience I had. So uh, it was about, 18 or 19 and my my first girlfriend <laughs> first true love and um let's see should i give you the punchline first or um <laughs> um the lead-in to this was that we had had sex and the condom broke and 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 then 
her period was late. So we were absolutely 100% convinced she was you know, pregnant and terrified. At least I was terrified. Um, in those days, they didn't have a home pregnancy test. You had to like, you know, go to the doctor and get a test. And we had to wait, you know, a few days for the results. Turned out she wasn't pregnant. But <laughs> the day before she was supposed to get the test results, she had a dream. And um, she told me the dream. And I had become friendly with this crusty old psychology professor because I was so interested. And I used to hang around with him, you know, like waiting for whatever pearls of wisdom he might bestow upon me. And, you know, and we become friendly. And I told him my girlfriend's dream. I didn't tell him what he didn't know. He didn't know that it was my girlfriend's dream. He didn't know anything about the broken condom or you know, our fear that she was pregnant. I don't think he even knew that I had a girlfriend. <laughs> I just said, you know, I, I said, um, you know, somebody told me this dream. It's like really interesting. And uh, so the dream was we were, um, she and I were in a car together and we were driving and we were driving over bridges, like over water, lakes or, you know, or rivers or something or crossing bridges. And that was the first scene in the dream. And then the scene changed and we were in a store, a hat shop. And, and I was, and she was there with me and I was trying on hats one after another. And, and there was more, it went on from there, but, but that's as far as I got before the professor interrupted me. And he was very formal. He called me Mr. Shedler. So Mr. Shedler, this is not, by the way, an example of good psychotherapy, but this is how it happened. Water represents birth. Crossing over water, driving over bridges and, you know, not being in the water represents a wish to avoid birth, to avoid pregnancy. It's covering, the, covering your head with a hat represents covering the head of your penis with a condom. Is the great now he didn't remember he didn't even know I had a girlfriend. And he says, The dream expresses your girlfriend's wish to avoid getting pregnant by having you use a condom properly. Well, he didn't know the backstory. And it was like, I mean, it, you know, it, it just blew me away. I mean, if, if the professor's words were, you know, heralded by celestial trumpets, I couldn't have been more surprised. I'm like, oh my God. Hmm. It's true. <laughs> dreams, they're not random neural dreams have meaning. Mm -hmm. The life of the mind has meaning. We can understand it. Right? And, and I and I had this very this this sense. If there are people in the world who understand things like this, I, I want to be one of them. Um for the benefit of your viewers, that is not <laughs> that is not the way you go about handling <laughs> dreams in psychotherapy. <laughs> but it had a big impression. You know, he shot from the hip, but he got mm -hmm. it right. Hmm. That capacity of intuition that I think is at the heart of that story, um, having having the reins on one's. Uh, did you have you been able to develop and watch yourself develop that capacity to tune into things or or to just have things pop up? Yeah, well, he had a lot. He had a lot to draw and a lot of information that I you know, that I didn't realize. You know, I, yes, I, I actually I actually did. Um, so um, a few years later, I became a grad student in psychology, and uh, and part of what I did was I was a, a TA in psychology classes, and. Um, <laughs> I duplicated that experience with somebody else telling me a dream oh. on, on multiple occasions. I don't do that anymore. I mean, there's something, you know, I mean, 
sort of rushing in to, you know, in, you know, give somebody a dream interpretation is, is not really what the work is about. And, well, especially and, if they're not going to pay you first or afterwards, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, even if they ask for it, 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 it you know, it's, um, it, it's kind of falls in the category of it, it, it's a little showy, it's show-offy, mm. you know, it's, it's kind of more in the you know, category of, of, you know, a pretty cool parlor trick, but, but still a parlor trick. It, it, it's not what we, it's not, it's not really, it's not, it's not the essence of, of, of what we do in psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. But um, I remember somebody, uh, you know, college, maybe college sophomore told me a dream in class. We were studying dreams. That, I mean, that there was a context for it. And um, <laughs> maybe you'll be able to interpret this because I'm <laughs> laying it out so transparently. It's taking off in an airplane. It's on a flight. And um, and it was supposed to land, but there was some you know some uncertainty about where to land, whether it was supposed to land in this city or that city. So it kept flying back and forth between two cities, you know. And the dream ended there. It's like like they never figured out where they were supposed to land. And well, you know, airplanes and flying are, I mean, <laughs> often you know, often stand in for, for sexual relationships anyway. So I, I, you know, I did the show off thing. I'm a little embarrassed about it now. And I said, I said, you're interested in two, two different women and you're not sure which one to pursue. And the guy, he just, how did you know that? <laughs> it's like, well, it was in the dream. <laughs> so, um, you're, doing a lot of work do you uh have uh resources would you like to plug like uh something that's coming up or where people can find more uh of your research or your talks or do you have a lecture series coming up uh, something like you know that? i am probably the only person on the social media that you're likely to talk to who is not selling anything <laughs> so uh i mean if it, there's some videos of me that are out they're not for sale you can just access them for free. Um, mm-hmm. I have a website. It's my name, jonathanshedler.com. On the website, there's uh, there's a, a, a menu. It says writings and some of my more popular articles, but both for other mental health professionals and, and for the general public uh, are on there, but, but they're all you know, free to download PDFs. There's some links to videos of me talking about different things about psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, is there a big, I don't, like I don't a, have anything to plug or sell. Well, is there is there like a big research that's going to change our minds about our minds that, that's on the horizon that you're you're working on behind the scenes? <laughs> you can just sure. say that you're not allowed to talk about it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure anybody's mind gets changed hmm. based on. Um, so I mean, two things. It's the hardest thing in the world. to. It's the easiest thing to say. It's the hardest thing in the world to grasp. When we say there, there's really such a thing as unconscious mental life, meaning that in very, very important ways, we don't fully know our hearts and minds. I know I've repeated that several times today. It's easy to say for that to really sink in, to really get that, you know, you know we don't fully know who we are. We can come to understand ourselves in the world very differently 
That happens in the context of a one-to-one relationship. I don't really believe that there's anything I can put out there in the world, you know, and someone will read a, read something or, or see a video that um, hmm. I don't really, I don't really believe that somebody would get it. Not, not in an intellectual cognitive way. Of course they would get it in a way that sinks in and really makes a difference. You know, I, I think that kind of change happens in, happens in meaningful psychotherapy. Um, there's one thing I, I am doing. I guess I'll, I'll mention this because it's it's more for the public. Most of what I do is, is aimed at other mental health professionals. But, um, I developed a mental health test. Uh, it's called PsychScan. Psych, P-S-Y-C-H hyphen scan dot com. Um, and it's it's really intended for, for other therapists. It, it's, it, it's a pretty comprehensive picture of of a person with respect to diagnostic categories so so if you're a therapist and you want a tool that will give you can't doesn't do the work of therapy for you but it will give you the you know the sort of landmarks and in, in you know in, in of, of the territory of of where somebody is struggling right? this, this test will do it it'll take about 10 minutes it, it uses artificial intelligence so it doesn't ask stupid questions that are irrelevant and when you're done I mean, you know if if you would meet criteria for a particular psychiatric diagnosis, it would tell you depression, you know, depression, anxiety, panic attacks, substance use, you know, substance use disorder. Um, so that that's something that's you know available for the the public. Most of what I do is really for other mental health professionals. There is a um, a power in all of the language and the concepts that your profession from Freud onward has in our popular imagination. Uh, and speaking to, to you has been helpful for me to kind of loosen up the abuses that certain words or types of thinking about uh, psychology or through psychology of other people. Um, it, it's helped me kind of reframe that um, it, it's easy for this stuff to get weaponized diagnostic tools. It can be taken into the public sphere. And like you were talking about narcissism, it's really easy for us to categorize and then actually perform these negative uh, things that psychology is trying to get us to not uh, behave or to do. So I guess just to sum up, what is the guiding principle that allows all of these tools to not become weapons. And I know that a tool can be a weapon or not a weapon, depending on the person. I, I, I think they do in. become weapons that unfortunately, um, generally, I, I, I mean, not so much among well-trained, well-trained mental health professionals that I respect. We understand that we're in the business of, of understanding people and helping them understand themselves. It's not about judging or evaluating or di- diagnosis. I mean, diagnosis has a function, but you know, it's not about diagnosing, like, you know, what's wrong with you of a disease. Mm. But less trained mental health professionals use the terms in ways that can be weaponized. And the public uses the terms in ways that can be weaponized. And, and I think it's, um, you know, it, among other things, it, it serves the purpose of, of laying claim to you know a certain authority or legitimacy or you know validity that's actually not there. So if I say, you know, well, I don't like this guy. He's you know he's an asshole, and you know, and here's why. It, it doesn't quite have the same weight 
as saying, this person has narcissistic personality disorder, right? right? And so I, I think people mm-hmm. want to use these, these terms, right? You know, everything is, everything is toxic. Everything is trauma. Everyone who's, you know, treated us badly as a narcissist. It, it, among other things, I think it, um, I, I, I just, I think it lays claim to an objectivity that, that's not there. You know, it's like if somebody says, um, mm-hmm. I had this really, you know, shitty experience. It left me feeling awful. You know, it, it, it's a little different from saying, you know, that narcissist traumatized me. Right? And, and it, it's like we have to, it's like there's something going on in the culture, especially in recent years. It's like we have to keep escalating the language that we use to be taken seriously. Hmm. You know, it's not good enough anymore to say, you know, I felt crappy about it and it bothered me afterward. You know, we have to say I was traumatized. It's like, it's like, you know, to, to sort of lay claim to the validity of our experience, we have to state it in, you know, increasingly extreme terms. And we need to state it in, you know, sort of, you know, quasi pseudo medical or psychiatric sounding terms. Hmm. Um is that our histrionic personality disorder shining through? Is that what's going <laughs> Can you diagnose that? Uh, and that's a joke, but it's it, the laying claim to the objectivity, the escalation, but also it's betraying the ethos of your, of, of the spirit in which these ideas were developed. And I think getting back to and exploring the ethos in, in the context in which these ideas were developed can help us to spot the misuse in the wild and also slow down and and not that's necessarily really deployed. nicely said i might have to plagiarize that in the future because you said it you said it so well <laughs> and um you know there's a lot of controversy and i've i've kind of got become a lightning rod for some of it on on, on twitter that um you know there's this this I mean, there's a lot of bad mental health practice out there. I mean, there, there are people who have been harmed by, by bad treatment. There's, there's no question about it. There's people on social media, like just have a vendetta against the mental health profession. And, um, and, and, and then it leads to this very, you know, sort of two-dimensional reductionistic diagnosis is bad. Diagnosis is harmful. You know, psychiatric diagnosis is an evil inter- enterprise that has to be dismantled. And, um, and, and what it misses is there's, you know, you can use diagnostic terms to, you know, you can weaponize them to, you know, to dismiss or, you get know, your or, way or, yeah, get your way, get the upper hand, dismiss or denigrate someone, but that's not what the language was you know, evolved for. So, you know, if we make a diagnosis, say, you know, say depression to take the most common diagnosis, it's likely to appear in somebody's medical record. Um, you know, is the function of, of, you know, coming up with that term, you know, is the function to label and categorize someone or is that, a prologue for understanding something, you know, constructive hmm. and useful that, you know, that opens the door to help. Right? So, you know, is it, is, is it a label or is it, you know, or is it the beginning of a process of, you know, helping make things better for them? Mm-hmm. I think in popular our, culture, it's yeah. usually the former though. 
It becomes an identity, I think, uh, on, on some level, uh, how we're being reduced by our mediums of uh, communication, the, the social media and stuff. It's uh, highlighting uh, this identity. Um, we, we, we like a label. We need a label now to, to interface. And a lot of things become a part of our identity. And you framing it in terms of, let's just say, depression or narcissism or you know, all these different kind of personality spins that, that people have. The identity isn't uh, – human being is a, is a agent and, and is in flux and, and, and it persists throughout time, is really complex, is really unknown to itself, is, is constantly uh, emerging in relationship with himself and, and other people around them. Um, and I think it's really difficult for us to, uh, I, I don't think that we're necessarily trained to understand what a human being is in our culture. And so we are relying on you know, very diminutive forms of what a, what a human being is. And, uh, yeah, ways of putting a, people in boxes or categories. Yeah. And then we don't. And really ourselves included. We do that ourselves, ourselves included. included. Yeah. yeah. And then we don't really have to think about or, you know, or, or, or um, you know, have to think about or encounter, you know, the unknown, right? We get a category and then we can treat ourselves or treat the other person, you know, as a category hmm. rather than the much more difficult and messier business of, you know, encountering them hmm. for who they are and, you know, discovering something, right? Why, why do I need to discover anything if I can put somebody in a category and I already know everything that I care to know about them before I find out anything more? And, and in, on like social media, on Twitter, that happens in, you know, it happens in a nanosecond, you know, one word and, you know, one word that's either, you know, maybe not ideally expressed or, or that's misunderstood by someone. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden you're on this side and against that side. It was like, wait, I didn't actually say or think any of that. You're misunderstanding me. And half of the time on, you know, Twitter, like, when that happens, I say, you're misunderstanding me. The other person insists that they know better what I thought and intended than I did. Right? It's more important for them. It's more important for them to hold on to their category mm. than, you know, to just to be open to seeing and hearing and discovering something that maybe doesn't fit. Yeah, the more um, the older I get or the more experience I have of myself, the, the more I realize I don't know myself and the more silly it seems to have all these strangers claiming to know me <laughs> better than I do, even though I've lived with myself and I still don't know. Uh, that That's probably a pretty, pretty good place to arrive at. Yeah. Do is there uh, some uh, part of you uh, or, or is there a hobby that you have that's completely different than than considering these things and uh, something totally weird, like you, you make things with glue in, in a basement or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I have a secret second life as a ski instructor. Oh, really? In Vail, oh, Colorado. Cool. Okay. Um, yeah. I've been a martial artist for, for many years. I haven't, I haven't practiced in much in recent years, but that's... that's were you, you were instructing uh, skiing this, uh, this season? I, I was I was there uh, I was there over the holidays. How was it? How, how was the awesome? The yeah, yeah. <laughs> it snowed and snowed and snowed and yeah. like yeah. It was, yeah, it was great. It's a uh, it's a pretty cool pretty cool job. You know, you like get paid money to go out and ski with people and you know Just, and <laughs> do something together that makes them happy. Yeah. 
and, and experience that wonderful thing called gravity. In a controlled manner, more or less, I guess, depending on your skill and the conditions at hand. Uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for agreeing to uh, meet with me and uh, letting me pick your brain. I, I, I got a wealth out of you, so thank you. Oh, thank, thank you. It was, it was, a, it was a, it was fun and a good experience for me too. Now I'm going to cut it down to 15 second clips and, uh, and <laughs> <laughs> like like NPR. Yeah. Recording stopped.